Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As we step out of lockdown and isolation and cast the athleisure wear aside, we come into a moment in fashion that celebrates colour and joy. It's time to express ourselves. It's time to be seen. So this is Style Stories Season 7, a series which continues to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a celebration of colourful and camp styles that ask bigger questions of our Australian identity. And if expressing ourselves and being seen is important, I've gotten a whole lot more visual and released a mini documentary on YouTube and Instagram that helps answer these style questions and tell the story of the colours of camp in Australia. Today, I'm chatting with Tim Nicol Ford, arts historian and creative director of Nicol and Ford, a demi-couture label they co-direct with their wife, Katie Louise. Tim is a thoughtful, intellectual soul who both in their work and their wear actively seek to break down gender as a binary construct. For Tim, fashion is a powerful vehicle for self-expression and it's their style to offer this with glamour and grace. And while the historian in them may be passionate about rediscovering lost narratives in their work, their style is not only one to be seen, but one to be heard. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Tim's story. Oh, the hours we've had. <laughs> okay, Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that you wear a couple of different hats. Mm-hmm. So you're the creative director of Nicol and Ford and you're um, a historian that does specialise in fashion and architecture. Yeah. Um, so you know that uh, all my style stories interviews start at the beginning. So mm-hmm. we're, it's a nice way to start off by mm-hmm. talking about your personal history. Okay. Um, and I think that what I want to start off with is understanding um, your, your upbringing in the, the Shire yeah. <laughs> and Cronulla. So <laughs> yeah. So do you, I mean, obviously us both having grown up in Sydney have some mm-hmm. very distinct understandings of what that might mean, mm-hmm. but can you tell me in your own words what the kind of subculture of, of the Shire and Cronulla looked like from your lens? Um, <laughs> right in that deep end. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that stands out to me most, so for people who aren't from Sydney, um, the Shire is, you know, 40 minutes away from the centre of the city, but also of culture. So it's what I would consider like a, a safe suburb, a good place to bring up a family if you're of a more conservative leaning. It's super white. It's, I think the distinctest thing for me is that there is no subculture. So you said, you know, what is the subculture of Cronulla? It doesn't exist. It's just... It's the most bland understanding of white Australia that you can picture. Mm-hmm. That's the spot I grew up in, which had many privileges in that it was a safe community where kids would ride bikes around streets and you could walk home from school and there was no kind of, well, of course, of course there's always creeps, but you know, it wasn't like living in some of the more interesting, but more, I suppose, difficult parts of the inner city where people wouldn't feel comfortable bringing up young children. And do you think that's why your parents chose to live there? Was they... Yeah, look, my, my father grew up there himself in the yeah. 60s. Yeah. Um, and so my whole family was there growing up. And 
I think it was a really safe, you know, close to family kind of place to be. Yeah. Um, and I understand why they did that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, as I said, you know, us growing up in Sydney, mm -hmm. I think it would be fair to say that you don't necessarily typically represent. Oh, God, what... no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what, um, what was different for you? Uh, I think I had a very unusual experience because I grew up in that very kind of, it's a very close-minded environment. Um, there's a bridge to get into the Sutherland Shire, which people always joke you need a passport to get across yeah. because once you're over there, it's really its own kind of secluded part of Sydney. And growing up, there was a neighbour I knew whose parent had never been across the Harbour Bridge in their life. They lived yeah. in Sydney their whole life. So it's that kind of thing where if you're happy with your environment, you don't need to look further, you just don't. And that's a pretty prevalent understanding of the world in the Shire. But I was fortunate that my parents sent me to school outside of the Shire. Yeah. Um, as everyone can tell from my voice, I went to a posh school <laughs> in the city. But I think that gave me the opportunity to understand, um, you know, a, a small conservative safe world that was like a middle class white understanding of Sydney. And then at the same time, uh, a very elite world where people were super well connected and could go anywhere, mm. you know, go skiing in Aspen for their school holidays and things like that. So I had closed minded and then super not open minded, but people who had access to huge opportunities and saw the world from a more global perspective, like aspirational middle class. So they saw mobility because we are, you know, white and they worked hard and had money. So we, um, like I, I went to the school I did on a scholarship, which was very helpful. Yeah. But also my family was in a position where if they needed to, they probably would have paid. But we just didn't go on holidays, like lavish holidays. We went and visited my grandparents as a kid. So mm. I think it was interesting for me being at high school and seeing all of these kids with lots of wealth. I felt very poor when I was in high school, which as I've grown up, I've understood is the most ridiculous thing mm. because I had incredible access to opportunity as a child. And I had a very like rich childhood in terms of experiences and culture. And my parents were really extraordinary in that way. So it just took me a while to understand. It's all about, you know, context and understanding of other people's experiences. So it just took me a little while to understand. I think it's easy to say that you have a curious mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to know, like, did that come from your household? Like, were your, were your parents curious people? Were they intellectuals that kind of prompted this sense of, curiosity in you to to, to want to study really. history or <laughs> not really no my parents were wonderful in that um it's interesting they're both very hard on themselves they're both um smart people in terms of that they've you know run a very successful household and they've both uh, my dad runs his own business and um they've been what kind of business uh he he's a, a trained mechanical engineer who now um, sells Swiss and German machinery. I mean, like literally no relationship <laughs> to my interests or world. And my yeah. mum has always been very proud of being a mum. That's kind of her. She's a career mum. Yeah. And um, that gives her a lot of joy. I did a lot of music growing up. That's how I went to the school I did. I was on a music scholarship. So I did a lot of classical music, which was a passion for my mum. I think that was just an access point into a broader understanding of the world. I think the interesting thing about my parents is that they are both very intelligent but didn't have huge access to opportunity themselves when they were younger. Mm. So I think they just pushed us to whenever we were interested in something, go for it. Um, I remember when we were 15, when I was 15, my sister and I went overseas for the first time 
And that was done with so much purpose by my parents that they wanted us to see the world. They wanted us to go to art galleries, go and see live music in Paris. Like it was just extraordinary even explaining that now. I'm mm. aware of what a gift that was as a child and how that opened my mind. But I think, yeah, having studied music as a child and teenager um, was also something that I think uh, has informed a sense of myself because it was it's what I refer to as like my first great failure, my first good lesson mm. to learn because I went to my school and in that small pond I was a big fish and I was a good musician and um, that gave me a lot of self-worth as a 14, 15 year old. And then when I ended up going, uh, joining a Sydney Youth Orchestra and doing things in a bigger, broader sense, I realised that I was actually not very good and that I didn't have the drive, passion and interest that I wanted to be as good as them. I think I realised that it wasn't my kind of career, my heart, um, and that there were people who were naturally more inclined to be absolutely brilliant mm -hmm. at music. And so I think that was an interesting lesson at that age to learn that I wasn't going to be the best at the thing I pegged all of my worth on mm. and that I had to think more broadly about what I actually wanted to do. Because I did so much music as a kid that it was just like a real path. In previous interviews, you've said like fashion was not a, a thing, right? It was, no, a, God, it was, no. it was a practicality. No. Bless my parents. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, it wasn't a creative endeavor. No, um, no, So what did- And I didn't have anyone, people, you know, in these kinds of interview formats often ask, like, was there a person in your childhood, like a crazy yeah. aunt or your grandmother who had a brooch collection? Yeah. I didn't have anyone in my childhood who had a particular sense of individuality or style, um, really. I mean, my auntie was a furniture designer, but she didn't pursue that and packed it in and went on to do other things. I mean, there just wasn't like a, a kind of key influential figure in my childhood. But so do you remember finding it as a kid somewhere on your own independently? Like, were you looking at magazines and curious? Mm. Were, you, were you watching TV? What, I like... think I remember being the, the easiest thing that comes to mind would be when we were overseas when I was 15 and we were in Florence at the time of Men's Fashion Week. Mm. And it was the first time I'd seen men performing fashion in mm. such an ostentatious way, that kind of peacocking, strutting around the street, aware that there's a thousand Giuseppes taking photos. <laughs> and, you know, it's very, very much a constructed performative part of, I think, especially for menswear. I was like, what are all these men doing? Yeah. Um, and so I think that probably was the first time that I'd seen that kind of fabulous act of dressing publicly. Yeah. Um, so maybe that was a switch point for me. I don't know. What did you look like as a kid? Like as in, oh, like, were God you... awful. Oh my <laughs> God. There is like a whole pile of things that have been burned. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of things that I just find fucking hilarious, to be honest. Like what? Uh, well, I, my mum dressed me, bless her, like my dad for a long time. <laughs> so at 15, I was wearing like the Maya dad section reserve, like, cream shorts and a polo with the stripe across the yeah. chest with like leather strappy sandals. Like I was a really fugly child. Um, and I think when I went to university and started having a little bit more autonomy and freedom and, and kind of just, not to say that my mum was controlling, I just wasn't really aware of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's something that kind of happened a little bit later. So let's get to that. You, you've gone to, so you, you've, you've kind of 
gone across Tom Ugly's Bridge. You're going to you're going to school in Broken the out. eastern suburbs in yeah, the city. Loosh. Yeah, you're going to kids' birthday parties <laughs> at the age of twelve on horses in Centennial Park. I mean, the stories, the cultural shock I experienced like going to that school. I was like, who are these people? After being at South Cronulla Public, uh, it was an interesting experience. You've come to like kind of have two passions that seems history mm-hmm. and fashion. Mm-hmm. Was history always a thread? Like yeah, I, I mean, I studied history at school. I did archaeology at university. Yeah. Um, so I was always more interested in ancient history, um, just because I think it's fascinating and cool. And who doesn't love to dig up a grave? Um, that's how I felt <laughs> as a teenager. Now we can leave the grave sealed. But um, yeah, I just I think there's a. I had a really close um, primary school friend who was a crazy brainiac, and he set himself the task of reading every history book, every um, ancient, like pre-modern history book in South Cronulla Library yeah. in one year. Yeah. So I just think I was surrounded by, um, you know, people who wanted to talk about it and were interested in it. And uh, I kind of went, you know, that drew me into it. And yeah. um, when I finished high school, my partner at the time wanted to study archaeology. And so as my second major, I was like, oh, let's do it together. Yeah. So it wasn't like something that I, I didn't ever want to become an archaeologist, but I was deeply interested in it. And it was fantastic because I got to travel. I went to Cyprus with university and uh, was part of a dig there, which was absolutely fascinating and eye-opening. So, mm. yeah. And then, so you've, in terms of fashion then, tell me what that moment is that you discovered it as a, as a mm. form of self-expression, as a form of joy and creative outlet for you. Well, when I started going to uni, I became really interested in like subcultural identities and the, you know, the internet doesn't lie. I had many like rockabilly vintage years <laughs> up my sleeve, um, which was just, I think, a period of experimentation. I think also it was, I've uh, been thinking about this a bit recently. I think vintage for me was a really easy way to put on a layer of masculinity because it's all kind of like, it's got roots in very traditional understandings of gender roles mm-hmm. and it's, you know, you wear a tie and you've got your hair slicked back and, you know, I think that's, it's kind of a layer you can just apply to yourself. I was also really interested in the cultural aspects and had lots of friends in the scene and things, but I do think that it was a tool of experimentation for me to start playing with identity as like a first step. Mm. Um, and my partner at the time was really into it as well. And, um, you know, it, it has all of the other kind of community social aspects and swing dancing and all those things that come with it. Um, so I kind of dived in, um, dove in, dived in, um, and then, yeah, so that was, I suppose that's my real, real first taste of it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, from there it just kind of just peels away. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you, once you pop, you can't stop it. (laughs) Tell me about it. Um, you, you talk about fashion as an extension of performance art and yeah, a construct a, a way to construct identity mm-hmm. can you break that down a bit mm. and what that means for you particularly now so uh having a shower this morning knowing that i was going to be talking about this today <laughs> i um i've over prepared the four p's through which i kind of understand fashion i think because it's it's obviously performative but then it's also a weird tension between being public and personal mm. and it's political. Mm. Those are my four P's. Okay. Um, because I think there's aspects to all of that, which 
support one another, but also directly conflict with each other. And I think that's my interest in fashion as a, all of the tensions that lie within public appearance. So there's a lot in that. There is so much in that. <laughs> How long we got? Can, can, you, can you illustrate yourself as an example of like trying to kind of feed through those yeah, things? Yeah, well, so performative is, is fairly self-explanatory because the way I dress is something that, you know, you have to be aware of the fact that people will see you or take notice of you mm. um, for better or for worse. It, by being someone with an individual style, it's just part of the experience is that people want to ask you questions about it or be involved in it or relate to it or not relate to it mm. and hate it. It's just part of having individual style and it doesn't have to be as outlandish as this. Anyone, you know, people in subcultures like the goth community is the easiest example. Katie grew up being called a witch and having, you know, stones thrown at her in her hometown. So um, I think you just need to know that the performance is is exactly that. It's a performance and it's something that, you know, people spoken to friends about this. You leave your house and you know you're stepping out onto a stage. It's just part of especially in the area we live in. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of performing happening in Newtown, yeah. um, which I think is a good thing. It allows people an opportunity for expression. It's a great way to share ideas. Um, but then moving forward to the more juicy parts of the piece, I think uh, one of the most common comments that I hear for myself or for anyone who has an individual sense of style is that um, it, it is a part of public discourse. People want to talk about it, but at the same time, it is a deeply private thing. You know, I, I know very few people who I think would say they're dressing for the outside world. They're interacting in the outside world, but they're dressing for themselves. They look in the mirror each morning. It's, it's every time you get dressed, it's a private experience. Mm. And I think that is something people don't necessarily acknowledge so much because it's seen in public and understood in the public forum and public sphere, but it's a deeply private thing. Um, and, and well, then, it's also an extension of, of your inner that's right. self, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And so, I mean, that's, I have a bit of a bugbear with people who say, I love how you dress, I never could, you're so brave. It's not brave, it's really <laughs> not. Look, it's brave if you dress like this in Russia, it's brave if you dress like this in Turkey or Spain at the moment. Like there are places where it's, very dangerous to look outside of the norm but I'm not brave walking around Newtown like mm. this I'm really not I'm just happy and I like how I look and I feel comfortable and confident like this mm. um, but it is also private like I, I think there's an interesting part of public discourse around fashion in that if you look different people expect you to explain why mm. you know people want to know oh so what are you wearing and why and how did you come to this? And I suppose it's the whole point of the podcast in a way, but I'm saying in more of a public context, yeah. particularly if there's alcohol involved, if you're yeah. in a bar or a pub, you know, people feel like if you're putting a statement into the world, they're allowed to question it, mm. which I think is part of the, the public personal tension in that do you have to justify it? Do you have to explain a choice to everyone at all times? But is that, an, and I'm just playing devil's advocate, mm. is that not part of the performative aspect that you enjoy? I think it just depends on the day. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes I think I've gotten home from work and I want to have a beer and I don't want to talk to you. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I should dress down in order to not be questioned right. by people in public. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something as I'm getting a little bit older now, I'm about to tick that 30 box and move into my 30s. I <laughs> oh, think... shush. Please <laughs> stop. I'm, I'm well above that box. <laughs> no, yeah. I, look, I know. Whenever I say it, everyone rolls their eyes. Yeah. But I do think that there is a, um, 
yeah, that's a signpost that yeah. people recognize and I'm starting to recognize it, that I'm, I'm a little bit more tired, <laughs> a little bit less willing to have that conversation all the time because what that person doesn't think about is that 10 people have already asked you that yeah. same night. Yeah. And look, it doesn't happen every day, obviously, and I don't look like this every day, obviously, but I think that, yeah, there's an interesting tension point between what you want to put into the world but what you want to explain to the world and does it always have to be explained? As in, you don't always have to answer the question. Yeah. People can just read it. People is that can right? just take it for what it yeah. is. Why not? Yeah. And it, they could completely misunderstand it, but that in itself is super interesting. And does that is that where the political comes in? Yeah, because so. you're trying to show a different understanding of gender and sexuality. Well, I think I'm just trying to feel my most comfortable. Yeah. And and I think at the end of the day, that's innately political because we live in a conformist society where you're expected to do, dress, speak, act in a certain way mm. within a certain kind of binary, binary understanding of the world. And so for anyone who deviates away from that, it's immediately political. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who don't like that reality. It's like, I just want to be myself. I don't want to make a statement all the time. But it's, it is sadly unavoidable. We don't live in a society where you can just freely be who you are without having to explain it. Do you think that there's a part of you that likes the rebellion of that yeah sometimes yeah I think I think once again it just depends on the context I think you know the political rebellion when you're with your tribe for want of a better word you know your group of people that um you know it all kind of you don't have to explain anything because you all understand one another um that in itself is political but in closed door behind closed doors mm. you know that the fact that um you can share those ideas freely without having to be in a public space or change anything about the way that you're acting, dressing or speaking. You know, for it to be political, it doesn't always have to be performative and public. Mm. I think it, the politics moves through both spaces. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, look, I'm very happy to talk about it. Um, and, uh, you know, it depends on what mood people catch me in. Cause you know, sometimes I want to have a real conversation about it and people ask a very, polite question and then I want to break it all down and then the other times and I just, just like one whoa thing. okay like, I, yeah I, I don't even know how to bargain with that so <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um and then at other times it's the opposite and you know people want to know a lot about it and I think I just I don't need to explain this to you I don't actually I'm not required to justify myself a hundred percent but mm. do you find that it, do you find that you are always performative? Is there times where you're not? Like, and, and then what does that look like? Like, if, you, if you're feeling tired, mm -hmm. you know, and, and if, you know, I am understanding fashion as a generator of inner self and mm -hmm. a sense of mood. Mm -hmm. And what that's, I guess, what I want to reconcile in understanding you mm -hmm. is if you're feeling tired, can mm -hmm. you be bothered with this? Like, it's a lot, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, like, would Katie you not just I want to tone it down? <laughs> Katie and I made the decision a few years ago to get, well, many years ago. Um, you know, I think as we were making clothing, coming into our own understanding and developing our own sense of style, we just decided to cut everything that didn't make us feel good about ourselves. Yeah. So we don't own sweatpants. We don't own comfortable things. We each own one pair of pyjamas. They're silk. They're very comfortable. Um, but, like, you know, if you take away the Ugg boots and you take away the things that you naturally revert to for comfort, yeah. you find that lots of your clothing is perfectly comfortable. It's just that you have these associations with what people would re refer to as like 
their slob clothing or their, yeah. you know, just around the house clothing. Because at the end of the day, it's a pair of pants or it's got an elasticated waist or you're wearing a belt. Like, it doesn't really make a big difference to your life. Yeah. Um, so we don't really have off-duty clothing. Right. Um, but obviously, I don't but then you look guys like are... this every day, you know. <laughs> the other thing about observing you, um, yeah, and I say observing because that's, you know, you know we haven't met till today. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we live in a highly visual world. visual voyeuristic <laughs> world where people are observed and it's a kind of a conscious consumption exchange. But if you guys aren't in your in your gear, mm. your 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 clothing, you guys do spend a lot of time naked, like yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so is is that your is that your off duty moment? Is that your kind of just paring mm. everything down and and all the the politics and the pretense can kind of go out the window because yeah. then there's no Nudity's no reading of anything. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it's very much you know you can't hide behind anything. You can't manipulate things any further. Um, yeah, I'm I'm quite comfortable being being naked. Yeah, it's, that doesn't mean that I like my body, mm. but it means that I'm accepting of what my body looks like to the outside world. So, yeah, it's. But is it is it is it a freeing, less pressured space for you? It's just different. Mm. Different pressures. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Not the pressure to have a conversation, explain things to people, but a pressure yeah. of my own in a dialogue, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what I'm telling you is that I'm never not under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're a very happy person. Yeah. Yeah, I am a happy person. So, so the is the pressure intellectual is it is it that that and curious personal. mind that always needs to be ticking is that what that I'm, is i find it very difficult to switch off it's not yeah. kind of who i am or how i'm wired i've yeah. always been like that as a child i think my parents found it exhausting yeah um but i talk a lot and i think a lot and you know i can't really go on holiday and sit in the beach. I'd like yeah. to. I think I may be maybe getting there soon. Yeah. Um, well, because you, you're turning thirty. I know. So, like, you know. You mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. I think uh, I think there is definitely a kind of insatiable curiosity to me that can also be a bit exhausting for myself yeah. as well. But yeah. it's um, it's ended up with the world that I've created, I suppose. Um, and so last question, well, around this kind of space, mm -hmm. like, you know, we've talked about potentially being a bit rebellious in, you know, like mm -hmm. the performative aspect is political and potentially rebellious. But would you say that the way that you represent yourself is actually incredibly modern? It's a, it's a, it's a movement. It's part of a movement to the way that um, the world needs to start thinking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the kind of deconstruction of polarised senses of gender yeah. and senses of sexuality that, that you're blurring the lines and that blurred lines that, as constructions that we've all kind of grown up to yeah, know. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, I see it as being modern for, for myself, absolutely. I think also people, I like playing with um, and I think a lot of people in this space like playing with vintage aesthetics to, to really fuck with people because mm. they obviously have very strong connotations of binary gender because we're talking about, you know, an era of glamorized Hollywood where things were so highly produced and there was masculine and feminine ideals and they were, you know, very much controlled by a studio system. Lots of people were repressed or out of jobs if they were ever different. Um, and so I think using that 
in a contemporary context and playing with it has interesting messaging. There's a lot of lot you can do with it. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think I, I read an interesting um, interview with Alok Menon, I hope I'm pronouncing their name properly, who is a um, non-binary trans activist in America, who I think put it really succinctly, I should find the quote for you, but um, there is something very, there's something within kind of like queer aesthetics or non-conformative aesthetics, which is very futuristic because what you're doing is you're performing an idea of what the future could look like. Mm. And so you're offering yourself and people around you an opportunity of the way we could be living. And that is political. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. So in terms... That's a good answer. Yeah, no, good, good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not my words, so... No, but I think, I, I think that's the kind of concept I'm getting to or, sure. or wanting yeah. to understand. Um, in terms of nickel and Ford, like mm. you obviously in the way that you construct the clothes, mm -hmm. the way you think about them, the kind of history that underlays yeah. the creative direction of your ranges, there's an inherent sense of inclusivity in in okay. what you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I want to know what that means for your customers and the community that buys mm. into nickel and Ford. What does that look like? Well, I think that is constantly shifting and evolving. I think we're really pleased that we are connecting with more of a non-normative audience now. I think when we first started, it was um, because we were still experimenting and finding our voice. It was more of a vintage wearing community who were looking for things that were close to kind of reproduction that they could wear and access those aesthetics with. But we're so pleased that we're making a number of kind of uh, non-binary bridal pieces at the moment and we get contacted by um, non-binary male presenting people who want more fluid suiting often and I think people just see that there are opportunities within our clothing to be able to push things around and look the answer really is as simple as whenever we put designs together we make sure that we would wear them and because of who we are and the way we want to present ourselves I think that's refining that audience because that's how I see myself as well. So yeah. it's just a, it's a, it's an honest thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's our community. So why are we not dressing our community? And, and so within that, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think you said earlier that you don't necessarily see a strong sense of Australian sensibility <laughs> in the way that you do things. But yeah. I, I, do you see that within this, you know, you're on Australia Street ah, in your yeah. town. Um, do you like that one? Um, do you see in that community that there is a bit of a resurgence of um, people embracing their sense of what being Australian or Australian identity means to them? It's a really good question. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I think some of the most interesting people in our generation in Australia have often come from overseas and are bringing really interesting ideas. Um, there's lots of very talented Australians here um, in our generation who are carving a new identity. But when we talk about Australian identity, like it really just brings to mind so many cliches which are being celebrated by some people, but also for me aren't really what I connect with personally. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's difficult. I mean, Luke and Anna, who run Romance is Born, yes. I think are the perfect note 
of what contemporary Australia is. This morning they dropped a collaboration with Ken Doan. Yes, which is I saw that fantastic. last night. Yeah. And, you know, and that's are, exactly the kind of reference point I'm talking yeah, to. Yeah, well, they're putting a really fresh contemporary take on that design dialect, which everyone knows, but how can it be modernised for a new generation? But, but I guess my question to you as someone, again, with a curious mind, mm. who understands history, who mm. uh, thinks about mm. fashion very yes. deeply, mm. why, like, obviously Romance Was Born is the kind of pinnacle Australian mm. label to yeah. demonstrate that, you know, between the... the um, collaborations with Jenny Keen, Linda Jackson, yeah. and now Ken Doan, you know, that there is, why do you think that that has surfaced now? Why is it, why is it popular even in their mindset? If they're, if they're leaders well, people, in... People love nostalgia. Nostalgia is always part of kind of like fashion dialogue, always. People, uh, you know, we're having this big 2000s moment, which is not for me, because I looked awful in the 2000s. <laughs> so I have no interest in going back there. Um, but... You know, we all grew up with Ken Doan and Jenny Key and Linda Jackson being part of our parents' aesthetic language. I remember, you know, my mum owning things within that world. Um, and so I think people are interested in... Australia is, from a colonial perspective, still a very young country. And so we're in a position where we don't have a defined language. And so what we do have, people love playing with because there is room to play with it. There's nothing set in stone. It, it, we're talking about, what, maximum five generations mm. of things moving away from a kind of British mothership perspective. Um, and even then, because we are in a conservative, white, Anglo, kind of Christian-driven society, people don't break away that easily. There's only a certain amount of people within each generation who develop new ideas. So within five generations of a few people, you know, it's still very young to have a defined aesthetic language. I said you, you kind of associate, there's a lot of glamour and a lot of history in the way that you sure. kind of creatively direct your clothes and, and you you don't necessarily associate yourself with a particularly Australian aesthetic. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. you grew up in Cronulla mm -hmm. um, and you're Undeniable. a historian yeah. <laughs> that has to understand yourself in context. Yeah, of course. So what I want to know is how does your Australian upbringing, what, what ways does it feed into how you represent yourself? Well, it's probably, uh, this is coming back to a kind of political uh, question again, I suppose, because I don't see myself necessarily um, as part of Australian identity, I like pushing further away from it because mm. that in itself is an interesting space to be in and have conversations around, you know, looking un-Australian I think in itself is very interesting as part of being in Australia. Yes. Um, and, you know, still having an Australian accent. Uh, we want to kind of break free of, I've always lived in Sydney, Katie hasn't, but I think it would be important for me to do so. Um, and, you know, maybe there will be an experience in that which makes me feel more connected to Australia, homesick, miss Australia. And so, you know, my ambivalence towards Australian identity might come from the fact that I've never experienced anything else. If there's this ambivalence mm -hmm. in your Australianness, the mm -hmm. way that you present yourself, is it not almost reflective of a, of a satire that is very Australian? Like, do you think that in some ways you are presenting a satirical version of masculinity and that within itself is very much part of the discourse mm. of our humour. Like, you see what I'm saying? I see what but, you're saying. So, it's, as it's I said, it might be a I stretch. I understand it. Yeah. yeah. Because I think, 
I think Australia, Australians have a very good sense of humour. I think Australians, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, but I do think that particularly when it comes to understanding, understandings of masculinity, that's something I think Australia does take super seriously. Um, and so for me, I don't identify my, my way of being in the world as a satire of masculinity. I think if anything, it's a personal statement that moves away from it. I, it's not a conversation I want to have with Australia, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah. for me, I don't think that the Australian expectation of my public appearance is worth me worrying about. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it I don't does. know if I've answered the question. No, you have. <laughs> you have. I th I th I, for me, I think you. It's it's political mm -hmm. if you're going to talk about gender, mm. um, and um, I guess maybe it's yeah, it's past a point. It's too serious for you to to find. Uh, yeah, but at it, the same time, if, if this is if this is a really interesting part of me to unpack because yeah. I don't take it that seriously personally. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I'm very aware that I don't always look like this and often things go wrong and, you know, you've got an idea of how you want to look and then it looks awful and, you know, you can't take yourself too seriously. Um, but I just, I don't engage with the discourse around Australian masculinity because I, I think that masculinity is an interesting thing and femininity is an interesting thing and the space in between is the most interesting thing for me, mm. which is very much kind of non-present in Australian society. But I don't think that um, there is a... Wow, the sound in here, Giuseppe. This is really oh, throwing yeah. you. Um, but, yeah, I just think... Uh, what was I trying to say? Yeah, I don't take myself too seriously. But um, at the same time, I think there's such a thing as, like, wasted conversations. And I don't, I don't think there's room for movement in Australian conversations around masculinity. I think there is around gender. But there's something about masculinity that's so tightly sealed in Australia... Um, and I was talking to a friend about this recently, you know, it's so uncompromising. There's, there's one way to be male in Australia. Mm. Um, and this friend is American and he said it's very, very different in America, which I've never been to America. And that surprises me because of my understanding through the media of America. Um, but yeah, I think there's a very, very narrow field of what our understanding of gender is in Australia. It's changing astronomically like so quickly it's extraordinary yeah. um and you know that's through a lot of work by very hard-working people um and it's just it's very interesting also because you have to be aware that you're in a bubble you know like i'm i'm not walking around like this in cupidity yeah. and you know i'm sure that would be an interesting <laughs> exercise in itself <laughs> but you know i'm i'm performing this aspect of visual representation in in a community where it's if not accepted, it's at least understood to a certain extent. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dress like this in Cronulla. I wouldn't go back to where I grew up and look so like this. So, what do you do when you, when you go home? Uh, my family doesn't live there anymore, which oh, is right. really helpful. <laughs> so you don't have to. Yeah, I don't have to worry about <laughs> it. Um, but you know, my parents live uh, two hours out of Sydney in the country, very beautiful yeah. um, place, and you know that's a small country town as well. So you know, Katie and I don't want to. We're a guest in that environment. We don't want to challenge people when we're, you know, intruding per se. So we just tone it back a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You just, I mean, we wear the same clothing, but less hair, less makeup, <laughs> more, I suppose, kind of off duty yeah. per se. Yeah. And I think it's important as a sign of respect as well of other people's environments and expectations. 
um, because you can be very political and go in everywhere guns blazing, but that's also not how good conversations happen. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not how people, if you alienate people too far, they're too threatened, and then they don't, they're not interested to understand anything about it because it's just so far away from their understanding of the world. Whereas, yeah, in different contexts, if it's like a gently, gently kind of thing, I think there's more room for good conversation. Well, hopefully this is one of those yeah. good conversations. Yeah, I mean, I'm in my home so I can be as kind of extravagant as I want to be. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you for being extravagant, but also, you know, pleasure. explaining things yeah. <laughs> easily. Um, thank you for sharing your style story, Tim. Of course. As you crack open the glamorous shell of Tim's story, you find a happy, curious, much-loved human looking to express themselves through softness rather than the hard edge we often attribute to masculinity. And while there is a gentle elegance that glides through Tim's demeanour, their firm beliefs, strong opinions and desire to break convention are testament to the strength of their character and the power of their story.